you don't know me, my name is Tyler. I'm a deacon and elder apprentice here at Redemption Hill. I am going to teach you a very short new liturgical element this morning. I'm going to say, Lord be with you, and you're going to respond with, and also with you. Can we do that? Good morning, and may the Lord be with you. The reason why we do that is to remind the person speaking that they need the Lord's grace just as much as the congregation does. So, if you would, uh, can you put the slide up for me? We're going to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. At the culmination of this, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and if you could respond with, thanks be to God. And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, My right hand until I put your enemies on the So how is He His... And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. But especially our kids, my pack, my pack is on. I'm talking. I'll just stand with my hand on my hip like I'm, I got an attitude problem. Uh, for, for everybody, but including our kids, I want you to go into your mind and imagine what a king looks like. And now imagine Jesus is king. What does Jesus look like as a king? What image comes to your mind when you think of this? Okay? So in, in this teaching, Jesus is sitting presumably with a group of teachers, and they're mulling over this question. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son, that the Christ is the son of David? David says, "The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies on your feet." But David calls this person Lord. How is he a son? And people found this interesting. Now, to us, this probably doesn't make much sense. This is an odd passage because Jesus quotes what is supposedly an obscure psalm. And he's got this stuff about sonship and lordship, and that's it. If we don't know the context of this, this will make very little sense. So here's some important things. Uh, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, the psalm that we just read. Uh, I think we're on like the third slide at this point. Uh, But what is the significance of this? Psalm 110 is the most quoted thing from the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament, and this psalm is quoted 29 times. It's quoted more than once per book. It's not quoted in every book, but it's quoted more than once per book. This is significant because it says the New Testament writers find something incredibly important with this psalm that Jesus is talking through. Uh, What is Psalm 110 about? It's about the descendant of David who would rule victorious. God promises to David, David, you will have a descendant, and I will put him on your throne, and he will rule for all time. So that's what this psalm is about. So what is Jesus getting at when he's having this conversation about what it is Psalm 110 means? He's poking at the hierarchy of the kings of Israel. So in Israelite culture, uh, in Old Testament culture, you could never be greater than your father. This is because your father helped bring you into the world. And so, of course, you couldn't be better 
than him. You could not have higher stature than he could. Because if he didn't exist, certainly you wouldn't exist. And so your existence depends upon someone who's not you. So when Jesus is poking this out, when he's pointing to this, he's dealing with this problem. How can David call his descendant Lord? Because his descendant could never be greater than he was. David is the prime of all Israel's kings. He is the first of the Davidic line. It's named after him. None of his sons could have been greater than he was. And yet, David calls this son his Lord, David's Lord. The audience who read this would have been confused by this. We know from extra-biblical sources that this was one of the most confusing things in the Old Testament. They could not figure out how could David's descendant, who would rule on his throne, be greater than he was? Why on earth would David call this descendant Lord? So Jesus is claiming to be more than just the descendant of David. He's pointing out, I am not just David's son. He is claiming to be something more than a mere human king. He's pointing by bringing up this passage, he's pointing out, I am not the thing that you think I'm going to be. I am something greater than a mere king of Israel. So a question for us to think through today is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Thinking about the gospel, we usually think of something like, Jesus died to save me from my sins. That's not incorrect, but that's only a piece of what we're going to get at. Let's look at this. Martin Luther called Psalm 110, the thing that you just read, Martin Luther called that the core of the gospel. He said that psalm communicates the gospel more than anything else in the scriptures. Charles Spurgeon and many of the church fathers, such as Athanasius, who we call the father of Christian orthodoxy, uh, uttered similar statements. They said, Psalm 110, that's the gospel. That contains the things we need to know about what the gospel is. Uh, So let's think about it again. The thing that Jesus quotes, the thing that we read, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Again, uh, to gain the significance of this passage, note that out of all the passages in Scripture, this one actually has a name. It's called the Dixit Dominus. It's just Latin for the Lord says. But if you go and study medieval church history, if, you, uh, if you're so inclined to doing hard things and, uh, like I am uh, and making yourself cry at night, uh, you can read medieval history. Uh, and they constantly refer to this Dixit Dominus. This, the Lord said. It's a constant theme that we see in the church. So think about what is the gospel. Where does the word gospel come from? It's from the Greek word euangelion, which is usually translated into English as good news. So we often hear this, uh, the gospel is the good news. But a question we should always ask is, what, what's the good news? Why is it good and why is it news? This is not, when we think about the good news of the gospel, this is not, I just found my phone, good news. If you are anything like me, I am constantly going, where did I put my phone? I was, I was, my mind was blown when I discovered that my Apple Watch can make my phone ding, uh, because I can never find it. I'm the kind of person who has lost my glasses on my face, 
Uh, I have lost my car keys in my hand. There'll be times where I'll be sipping coffee and I'll forget where I have put my coffee mug in my hand. Uh, this is not that kind of good news. Like, oh yeah, good, I just found my coffee. Or, oh, there's my phone dinging. That's where it is. This is not, I just bought a new house. Good news. Which is, of course, good news, usually. Okay? This is not, uh, this is not even, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm going to see my family. Good news. These are often good things, but this is not the kind of good news that it's talking about. This kind of good news is our king is victorious, and we aren't going to be enslaved by the other guy. In the ancient world, this is the phrase that you would say when your country did not lose the war. Because in the ancient world, when you lose, when your team loses the war, it's not just, we lost, oh well, it's, we might all get enslaved now, if we're very lucky. If we're unlucky, they'll just kill us. Uh, so, this is the good news. Oh, our king won. Especially in the first century where Jesus is speaking, it's, hey, Caesar won. Okay, Rome won again. Okay, we are again victorious. We're not going to be taken captive by the other guys. Okay, In the ancient world, euangelion almost exclusively means this, that our king won. It's never a claim of personal salvation. So when the first Christians proclaimed euangelion, everyone would have heard them saying this odd phrase, Jesus the king has won. Which of course would make them go, who's Jesus and why is he king and what did he win? That's a good question. Who is Jesus... Where is he king? And what did he win? They would have not heard, this guy has come and he has saved you from your sin. Because in the Roman world, they would have said, what's sin? And why do I need to be saved from it? You mean I, you mean I shouldn't do certain things? That's preposterous. I'm going to do whatever I want. The Roman world was incredibly nuts. People broke the rules. So if you had told them, you need to be saved from your sins, that wouldn't have meant anything to them. There's like, what, what is, there is no sin to be saved from. It sounds somewhat like our culture. They're not saying this. They're saying, no, no, no. There is a new king, and he is one. How do I know this? In the first century, the Jews were expecting a political king. Jesus uh, is coming, and he is claiming to be the descendant of David. David, again, is promised someone who will come and he will rule from David's throne and he will be the ruler of Israel forever. That's what they're expecting. They're expecting this guy to show up who is on David's descendant, who will sit on David's throne and he'll rule forever. Uh, David, someone to rule on David's throne. The disciples were expecting Jesus to be this political king. Often Jesus tells them, uh, yes, but that's not the kind of king I'm going to be. I'm not here to overthrow the Romans like you think I am. There were all kinds in the first century, all kinds of supposed messiahs, all kinds of people who claimed to be the Christ. They all failed. They were all trying to overthrow Rome or some other oppressor. Jesus comes in and says, uh, I mean, yes, I'm the, I'm the king, but I'm not going to do that. You've misunderstood what I'm here for. Jesus accepts kingly accolades. When he rides into Jerusalem, 
Okay, on the donkey, if you're familiar with this story, he rides into Jerusalem. They're throwing the palm branches at him. We call it Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter. Uh, This is him riding in on his coronation. When a king would be proclaimed the new king, they would ride into town on a horse and everyone would proclaim, hey, this is the new king. It's fantastic. We have a new king. He comes into Jerusalem. He rides on a mini horse, a tiny horse, a donkey. Good. Uh, And he proclaims to be king, sort of, but not the way that they're expecting. The Romans even realized this. They picked up on this theme. They give Christ a crown of thorns, and they nail above the cross, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, the Romans thought this was ridiculous, because, hey, we're we're crucifying this guy. He's not, whatever, he's not a king. But even the Romans realized Jesus is making a claim about being a king. The Romans just thought, it's ridiculous, he's not a king, but he's making a claim about being one. Okay? So what is the gospel? If we pull the gospel into its historic context, using the phrase, the gospel, would primarily mean that Jesus is the victorious king. When we were to say this in the first century, this is what they would have understood. When I said, do you want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? That message would have been, do you want to hear about how Jesus is king and how he's won? Pulling from a ton of scriptures, uh, Revelation 19, Jesus is the king of all other kings and the Lord of all other lords. Uh, He is the ruler of all other powers. In his resurrection, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his coronation, he claims to be the King of all other kings and the Lord of all other lords. Revelation 22, Jesus is the true descendant of David. He will rule forever and ever. In Isaiah 9, the uh, government's rule by His command. There is no earthly power now that rules without His permission, His authority. So think about this, okay? Uh, The President of the United States has ambassadors, and he sends them out to various countries to do whatever it is they're going to do. Those ambassadors do not rule on their own authority. They have space. U.S. embassies are sovereign United States ground. And the ambassador, whoever they are, is in control of that space. They get their own squad of usually Marines, uh, and they get to make the rules in this country. And Sorry, in their little space in that country. But they don't rule on their own authority. They rule at the behest of the sitting president. Similar, Isaiah 9, we get this picture that there will be other earthly rulers and powers and what have you, but they rule at the behest of Christ's rule. They rule because He allows them to be there. Uh, In Ephesians 1, it says, The Father has placed Christ in authority over all things, both now and in the age to come. Daniel 9, Christ was given all dominion so that all should serve Him. In Acts 2, Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne and He is the everlasting King. So now a thing to think about. 
What does it mean that Jesus is ruling now? So Ephesians 1 that we just had up there says that Christ is ruling both now and in the age to come. In my experience growing up, I was always given this picture of like one day Jesus will be king. One day, but not yet. He's not king yet, uh, but he will be. But that's not what Ephesians says. It says all authority has been given to him now. And of course, in the age to come when he consummates all things to himself. But he's ruling now. So a thing to think through is what does that mean, really? What does it mean that Jesus is ruling now? And again, he always, Christ always accepts claims of political authority. He never, he never says, that's not me. He just says, I'm not going to do it in the way that you think I am. So if that's the case, and he never corrects this notion, what does it mean that Christ is king now? What does it mean that he is the ruler of all rulers now? Okay, so I've, made, I've said a couple of times, of course, the gospel is not primarily referring to personal salvation, but to remove salvation from this would, of course, destroy all the hope of Christianity. I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm pointing out because Jesus is king of all, he is the one who has the power and authority to defeat sin and death. Because Jesus is this king, he is the one who has the claim that can say, sin, you are no longer dead. To me. And you can't act without my authority. So in Christ's death in defeating sin, and in His resurrection in defeating death, He is the one who has the power to say, this is no more. I have defeated this. Even death is subservient to the King. Hebrews 1, by defeating sin and death, Christ has demonstrated His rightful claim to be the King. Christ doesn't earn His kingship. He, does not def- he doesn't become King because He has done some work. He has not become King because He has defeated sin and death. Because He is King, He has the authority to defeat sin and death. Okay? What about victory? Christ is the victorious reigning king. What does this mean? Matthew 28, Jesus has all authority and He sends His followers to make the nations into His disciples. Note this, in Matthew 28, Christ says, all authority has been given to Me. Not some, not authority over the church. He says, all authority is Mine. It all belongs to me. Now go and tell everybody. The word in Greek for nations is ethne, meaning it's peoples. Go tell all the peoples of the world that I am king, because all authority is mine. All other powers are mine. Go let them know. Psalm 110, which we read, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father until His enemies have been defeated. 1 Corinthians 15 explains this for us. Jesus will defeat all of His enemies. The last enemy defeated is death. 
Now notice the ordering here. The last enemy defeated is death upon his return. When Christ returns, death stops. We stop dying, which is a good thing. Uh, But all of his enemies are defeated before that point, which means as we go down the timeline, as we're moving closer to Christ's return, he is defeating his other enemies before he gets there. And he will defeat everyone who is not for him before he returns. When Christ is finished defeating all of his enemies, including death, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he will take his completed work, the work that has proved that he has all authority in all things, and being a good servant, he won't keep the authority for himself, but instead will return the authority to the Father who bestowed it to him. So Christ in this way presents himself as the servant king to us. He's not the kind of king who comes in and says, all authority is mine and I will do whatever it takes to keep my authority. I will destroy everyone who stands in my way because this authority should be mine. Christ comes in and says, all authority is rightfully mine and when I have exercised it, I will bestow my finished work to another. In 1 Thessalonians 4, when Christ returns... We welcome our victorious king. This is usually the passage that is cited for something like a rapture. We will be caught up into the clouds and we will welcome the victorious king. 1 Thessalonians 4 uses the language that you would use when your king returned victorious from battle. If the Roman world, if your king won, if Caesar won, what have you, a whole party would go out from the cities to meet the king and celebrate with him all the way back to his throne room because they were excited. Their king won. They weren't going to be enslaved. This is good news. Uh, this is the same language in 1 Thessalonians 4. When Christ, is return, when Christ returns, we will be caught up into the clouds to meet with him to celebrate his victory on the way to his throne because he has defeated that which enslaves us, which is sin and death. And we will celebrate with him. In Revelation 21, he says, Behold, I am making all things... New, I am reshaping things to make them new and to make them good and to make them glorious again. So here is the good news. Christ is victorious. He has defeated and will defeat His enemies in their totality, including both sin and death. So our good news this morning, is that Jesus is King. This is the Gospel. Uh, Ben, I'm going to invite you to come back up. I'm making this quick this morning, so I am going to pray, and we can call it a day. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, You alone are the Most Holy King and the Ruler of the nations. We pray to You, Father, and the great expectation of receiving from you mercy, peace, and justice. We pray that we will receive from you all good things. Guard us as we pray, most faithful Christ. And from your last judgment, forgive us, O sovereign King, the sins we have committed against you. For Jesus, you are the King of mercy. We have deserved your last judgment, but you have had mercy on us. We trust in your great love and your great mercy. 
May your reign, your kingdom be recognized on the earth. Amen.